0: Welcome to the Political Risk Podcast, an independent podcast focused on geopolitical risk to serve decision-makers in specialty insurance markets, reinsurance, and beyond. I'm your host, David Benyon. This is episode 11, our second conversation of 2024. We've now accrued more than 2,000 downloads and a growing community of listeners including almost 2,000 followers on the Political Risk Podcast's LinkedIn page, so please do follow us via that channel. This episode features Chris Holt, Chief Executive of CHC Global, a London market insurance broker and advisor focused on the malicious risk environment. Chris is widely recognised for his work across terrorism, political violence, kidnap and ransom, cyber and extortion, from both an insurance and an advisory perspective. I've known Chris for more than a decade from when he led JLT's Credit Political and Security Risk Consulting Practice, and before that he was a Consulting Director at Aon Crisis Management. However, before Chris began his insurance market career, he served as a bomb disposal officer in the British Army's Royal Engineers. He's a strong supporter of veterans' charities, and Chris was appointed MBE in 2004 for services to bomb disposal. Quite a career, and I ask him towards the end of this episode about this change in careers from soldiering into the political risk and malicious risk part of the insurance market. You may know CHC Global already for its work in the London market. Just over a year ago, CHC produced a data collection exercise for Lloyds, which usually gets referred to as an RDS around the market, asking Lloyds market syndicates to assess their exposures to a China-Taiwan crisis scenario. Just this month, CHC released its latest annual malicious risk report for 2024 which provides indications of some of the factors likely to drive primary, secondary, and tertiary impacts in the malicious risk environment. That report has three major themes. The implications of energy transition, the race for technological superiority, and political polarisation. And we'll delve into all of those themes in our conversation. And now, over to Chris, who will set the scene by telling you a little more about what CHC Global as a company is focused on.
1: We're a Lloyds-based insurance intermediary, but we also have an advisory business. So our aim really is to help organizations understand, manage, and then transfer their risks through insurance. And our focus is really on what we refer to as malicious risks. So for us, that's any deliberate action intended to cause significant harm, loss, or disruption. And what that means practically is that's what's previously been called the crisis management perils or special risks. So that's terrorism, political violence, kidnap, ransom, extortion, organisations who are either travelling to or operating in hostile or non-permissive environments. And then we also touch on the hostile components of cyber. So we're a small business, but I'd like to think that we've got some of the best specialists in the market. And we're really focused on that niche and unashamedly so.
0: So the report takes a thematic approach. Uh, why did you choose to focus on these broad macro-level themes?
1: Often, if you're trying to help an organisation understand, which you think's got to be the first thing you do, we're often trying to understand the intent of the individuals who are seeking to cause harm. And that intent can be as simple as financial disparity and the fact that some people don't have money in their pocket and they would quite like it, or it can be very complex. Terrorist organisations... And sometimes labels can be helpful, sometimes they can't, but organizations that have got to the point where people are so upset about a single issue that they turn to violence, it can help to understand what the underlying issue is, because then an organization can aim off either with its actions or with the way it communicates, or indeed by understanding the intent of those organizations can anticipate what the kind of attack might look like and then ensure that their risk control measures are appropriate, either to protect their assets, their people or ultimately their operations.
0: CSE Global recently released its annual malicious risk report. It's a great kind of bellwether of some of the the threat environment that we face. You and I have previously talked about the context of decarbonisation, energy transition, and how that might impact malicious actors.
1: So as, as you say, we've released this year's version of the annual malicious risk report. And the aim of that really is to look a little bit upstream at the risk environment. And then try to draw some threads out on what the, the kind of secondary or tertiary impacts might be that, that might affect organizations. And we've talked about this before. There are kind of three broad themes that we tend to always look at. One around strategic competition, then around the issues presented by the fourth industrial revolution. And then finally, at the moment, this issue around the change associated with climate change and, and decarbonization. And the way that we've positioned that in this report is to talk about the issues associated with petrostates shifting across to electrostates. And I think we've looked, and I should say, as you well know, I'm not an economist, but we have looked at some of the scale and pace of change that's required to achieve some of the targets around decarbonisation. And I think our analysis is, given that scale and pace of change, it's entirely likely that there are going to be some opportunities created for malicious actors, both internationally and in those areas where there's likely to be competition for natural resources, but also domestically around some of the those secondary and tertiary issues associated with the, the friction that we're likely to see with decarbonisation.
0: So what is it, Chris, about the pace and the scale of change that will impact the malicious risk environment this year and going forward?
1: I think at its most basic level, if you look at where oil producing nations have been over the last five, seven decades, and then look at the kind of critical mineral distribution globally, it's just a different list of countries. So, you know, top producing oil nations, USA, Saudi Arabia, Russia, Canada, Iraq, and we kind of know what the geopolitics around that has been for the last seven decades. Actually, if you look at the countries where there's significant mineral wealth. A lot of them are in the global south. So it's Democratic Republic of Congo, it's Mexico, it's uh, Peru, it's countries in Southeast Asia, and I think that in itself is going to be an issue. There's no guarantee for those countries that that mineral wealth is going to be positive for their economies, and indeed for some of them, it's a bit of a resource curse. You know, we may not see an economy like. Dubai and Abu Dhabi in the DRC as a result of their resources being made available to the global economy, but I also think there are just some issues of scale and the pace of change which are quite striking. So, you know, to get the economy going in the direction that we need it, and I'm going to kind of throw some facts around. They're not ours; they're from kind of people like the World Bank or McKinsey, or but I think they're useful just to get a sense of direction of travel. So the estimates that we've seen is, you know, lithium iron battery usage through to 2030, which isn't that far away. Globally, we're likely to see a, you know, three to four times increase in that requirement, which through to 2050, the estimate is that we're going to need to see a 35 times extraction levels of lithium to be able to service that requirement as it goes to 2030 and beyond. That's a huge amount of stuff coming out of the ground. on the converse side of that, as we turn down the requirement for hydrocarbons, we're going to pull, and the estimate that I've seen is, around $8 trillion a year out of the economies of those petrostates. Well, some of those economies are pretty reliant on those revenues. And then, I think from an investment perspective, there's a shift in what we're going to need to invest in to ensure that our economies are ready for this transition. So again, the estimates I've seen is that we're likely to need to generate about three times as much electricity by 2050 than we do now. So we need to generate more to be able to power that shift in, for example, EVs. You know, we need to be able to generate three times as much electricity and the other infrastructure that goes along with that transition. I've seen a report from McKinsey suggesting that that's there's a requirement of around $9 trillion worth of investment every year, year on year, into these technologies and infrastructures. And we're slightly off the pace at the moment. So there are some large and very meaningful numbers around what we're about to do to the global economy. And I think current with that, and for us, this is not kind of future stuff. This is we're seeing it now with climate change is we've also got populations on the move. So, you know, World Bank talks about their estimates that they might see just over 200 million people displaced internally in the next decade. We've seen estimates, admittedly, they're kind of above 1.5 degrees of change, but there are estimates that go up to kind of over a billion people who might have to move in the next two decades around climate change. Look, these are all big, really big concepts, but I recognise that our, our interest is quite narrow, really, which is... All right, well, with that change, where are the fissures likely to be in societies? And it's interesting because some of it's already happening. And of course, we, we should say that this change represents huge opportunity, right? So for many businesses, this is a massive opportunity. Of course it is. And I wouldn't want anyone to think that our focus on the narrow kind of negative bit is nothing to do with our sentiment. It's just, just what we do for a living, right? But I do think there are going to be, because it's an opportunity, there are going to be winners and losers. And Unfortunately, when you look at how this might play out, you can see the likelihood that certain countries may not end up trickling down significant amounts of wealth to their citizens. So you do then create the kind of fissures in society that create the opportunity for malicious actors to provide a different narrative for people. To just feed that back to an insurance
0: context, so if the, if the client is let's say, an extractive industry player, or in whatever their business may be, may, perhaps it's nothing to do with it, but they just may be on the ground in an area which is part of this narrative. They're going to be more reliant on, for example, physical security themselves, and they're going to have
1: physical security risks to ensure. I think so. And so you kind of take that start point and say, well, look, there's some operational stuff around, we're going to have a lot more extractive industry going on to start with, We're going to have a lot more of those people who are in countries which are potentially either hostile or or at least non-permissive.
0: Yeah, I guess there's an irony as well because whether or not you're talking about lithium or, or you're talking
1: about hydrocarbons, it's all extractive. Exactly that, and I think sometimes it takes a while to work that out. Is that, and sorry to put it so kind of in such a straightforward way, but you know the transition away from oil to a greener economy we're still going to have to pull enormous amounts of stuff out of the ground. So it's not that we stop doing damage to the planet that way. We're still going to have to transition away from hydrocarbons. We're going to have to extract a huge amount of you know lithium cobalt and the other kind of rare earth metals, because that's what's going to drive the economy. So there's going to be a race for those resources, which is going to play into that strategic competition bid. So one of the things that we see and have seen is Those organizations and companies which are involved in this might then not be just about extractives. It might be anything to do with, frankly, the race for technology, for technology superiority, where that relationship between economic and military is getting much closer. And I think if you look at all the governments, broadly in the inverted commas West, you find that they are communicating with business leaders a lot more, saying, look, actually, there is a relationship now between our state health if you like and ability to transact and the economy there's this kind of military economic relationship in that instance actually institutions need to recognize that their information and their communications are at risk so there's a kind of cyber piece there but also we are increasingly seeing the targeting of senior executives so whether that's things like illegal detention or illegal not but you know detention at borders Or it is just the direct targeting of senior executives by competitive actors, then that's starting to go into that kind of second order piece where we see institutions that are already being affected and we think likely that those impacts will increase. And then I think if we move on from that again, you then find yourself looking at the kind of tertiary pieces of, okay, well, whether it's from the direct impacts of climate change or the impacts associated with this shift whatever it might be we're likely to have populations on the move and wherever we've seen that to date and we are seeing it now we get a reaction from that so you know we could talk about the movement of individuals from either the eastern end of the mediterranean or indeed from sub-saharan africa through north africa into the kind of underbelly of europe you get a reaction there and that often is about an increase in far-right sentiment it's around very negative response to those immigrant populations who are coming through, and you also get this kind of increasing political popularism. And what we see, frankly, in many of the countries around Europe and North America, which is this kind of really polarized political debate, which then leads to strikes riots, and civil commotion, or can lead to protest groups, which are prepared to move towards direct action. So we start at the top saying, why do we interest ourselves in these really grand kind of geo-economic themes? It's because for us, they ultimately lead to helping organizations understand, look, these are the things you're likely to have to deal with in the upcoming 12 months and certainly out in the three year planning cycle.
0: Before Christmas, I was at an event hosted by Samfire, held at Lloyd's, which was focused on the politically charged atmosphere in the US and the likelihood for US political violence in 2024, no matter where the Democrats or the Republicans come out on top in this year's presidential race speakers were clear that at that briefing that there'll be discontent either way as whichever side loses the race for the white house may not regard the winner as legitimate
1: you know reflecting on that event that Fire hosted and looking at the potential risks associated next year not just in the us domestically but that will inevitably impact internationally you know that kind of polarization whether you look at it from the lens of one side or the other You know, we can all see that polarisation, how it's manifesting on the ground, you know, with increased protests. So I think all of the major brokers, as well as we do, see an increase in demand for quotes for strikes, riots and civil commotion in North America. And we're also seeing that, frankly, in Western Europe as well now. Our obligation really is to look at this stuff with a fairly straight eye and help our clients understand what the risks are that might manifest that might directly impact them.
0: So it seems fair to expect increased demand as well as opportunities for those carriers with the expertise to underwrite these risks amid uh, higher premium on offer.
1: Certainly in a market where I think inevitably reinsurers and insurers are going to seek more premium for risks that are starting to manifest more frequently. I think the broad kind of arc of terrorism insurance, so let's call it political violence, because I think the concern around narrow terrorism definitions is probably not as Keen is it is around the broader political violence piece. So you know the long list of rebellion, revolution, insurrection, particularly strikes, riots, and civil commotion. And we see a real interest in that that kind of strikes, riots, civil commotion piece. There's an aligned set of products. They might be called active assailant or active shooter in the US, where I think there are kind of traditional crisis management benefits. We see real real interest in those. And then again, happening now and interest now, not in the future, is the kind of cyber activity that occurs between those strategic competition actors, whether it's state or non-state level, and then that direct targeting of senior executives. So it's kind of terror at large or political violence writ large, cyber, and then that piece around individuals, which might look like K&R, but actually sometimes that lends itself more to risk management, frankly, than, than insurance buying. So prevention, much better than cure.
0: Moving the lens to the developing world, and to the role of non-state actors in politically volatile regions such as Sub-Saharan Africa, are we seeing more instability due to, example, uh, PMCs like Wagner or or its successor organisations playing an active role in taking sides in some of these coups and conflicts that we're seeing emerging in Africa?
1: So, last year one of the themes in our annual malicious risk report was the rise of armed non-state actors. And I think this year, I think we take no pleasure, if I'm honest, in probably being proven right about the increasing importance of armed non-state actors. And we've only got to look to the the Middle East and the kind of horrific events that are going on there to see that. But I do think particularly in the race for resources, particularly in places like sub-Saharan Africa, associated also with the kind of resource nationalism that we're inevitably going to see, and we already are seeing in... Some of those countries, there's some fascinating positioning around resource nationalism amongst some of the countries that have realized that they've got significant mineral wealth. But yeah, other countries don't necessarily play by the same Queensbury rules that we might do when it comes to securing assets or securing relationships. And, you know, whether Wagner continues to exist in the manifestation that we've seen it, or frankly, there's a change, I do think it's likely that we'll see proxies for states which are wishing to secure resource, but also secure relationships. You know, the use of those groups to support leadership regimes in countries that are frankly a bit wobbly is a great tool to form a relationship, to be able to say, look, we can support you. We've got this organization that can support. And the quick pro quo is we get access to this. In the case of Wagner, I think there's quite a lot of good journalism about their access to gold, in sub-Saharan Africa, and I'm sure we'll see non-state proxies being used to secure favour with countries who are accidentally resource wealthy.
0: Yeah, and for some of these wobbly, unstable regimes, of course, there are going to be some pretty major pros and cons of engaging the different international patrons, right? So whether that's the likes of Russia or Iran or, or with Western powers.
1: The deal on offer and you can see this, and it happens frequently, the deal on offer from broadly NATO-aligned nations, let's say, might be security, and that might look like North American or Western European troops on the ground. But that comes with a big ask, which is normally around human rights. It's around anti-corruption measures. And some of those things, quite reasonably, for those leaders and countries, might be difficult. And actually, if another actor is coming and saying, well, we can also provide security, but we're not gonna require those other things, that that kind of quid pro quo of you changing the way that governance works in your country. We'll just provide the security. And it may well be that if you're on the other side of that table, deciding what's best for your country and what's most likely to be delivered effectively and keep you in charge, you know, it may well be that engaging with a non-state actor from Russia, China, or, or elsewhere, actually looks like a better deal. And I think our leaders, you know, politicians and military, do probably need to work out quite how we're going to ensure that our deal is more attractive and that the tyres are touching the tarmac on this competition for natural resources.
0: The coups that we've seen in the last year in sub-Saharan Africa, it's in that sub-Saharan African belt near the equator of countries
1: where there is so much vital resource for things like energy transition. I think Mali is a brilliant example. So Mali has significant wealth, but I think we would say at the moment that she hasn't necessarily been able to access it. The people on the ground probably aren't feeling the warm glow of the mineral resources that they have in the country. And if anyone does get in there and cut a deal to access those resources, our guess would be that's not gonna be to the betterment of the kind of society and those people in the lower socioeconomic groups in society So there is this kind of curse of resource benefit, but I don't think it's going to play out the same way as it did with oil. You know, maybe we're proved wrong here, but Mali hasn't been able to make the most to date of the resources it has. And across that whole coup belt, you would say the same of those countries. And that is going to drive narrative for malicious actors. It is going to drive people north into Southern Europe. All of those things that we've talked about throughout this podcast, you know, we put it in the report because we do think organizations need to be thinking about this stuff now. You know, it is already manifesting. Miley's a good example. The kind of secondary and tertiary effects are also manifesting. And boards which wish to ensure their long-term resilience, we think, and we work with them, need to be able to navigate this stuff.
0: To round off, Chris, do you have some practical advice for organisations navigating this malicious risk environment?
1: Yeah, I think, as you've seen in the report, we always try to go from the grand strategic and then hopefully tease out practical issues for organisations to consider. I think there's a practical piece here around managing operations in complex environments. And there's the range of normal insurance cover, but also risk management there around people, assets, operations, I think there's a significant piece around compliance and regulatory management in those environments now as well, ensuring that we are acting ethically if you're in those countries. So that's the first thing. It's just the kind of practical stuff around operating in a complex environment. I think the second thing, I mean, you know, predicting the future is always fraught with danger, but I do think we can quite comfortably say we're going to see more civil commotion. Domestically, both in North America and Western Europe, whether that's associated with the election cycles that we have. You know, I know there's also an election in India this year. So I think civil commotion and organizations understanding what the impacts of that may or may not be for them, and then having sensible risk management, but also risk transfer around the issues posed by SRCC. And then I think there is this kind of final bit around the direct targeting of both institutions and individuals. And I think that's probably more around, you know, one of those themes that is in the report around the race for technology, you know, businesses that are involved in, and people know the sectors, you know, if you've been in biotech or quantum computing, then you've had a close relationship with your government for a while, because, you know, those very impactful technologies there is a race for ip and not all of it is Queensbury rules so yeah the final piece for us is it's around cyber and it's around protection of ip and it is around the direct targeting of senior executives when they travel either into geographies which are perhaps playing by a different set of rules or in the periphery so in adjacent geographies where those countries feel more prepared to act in a way they perhaps wouldn't do here in the UK or the US. So those are the, probably the areas. So ops in complex environments, civil unrest, and then direct targeting, particularly of institutions involved in technology, all these resources which are likely to offer confer advantage on the states who manage to get to the front of the queue.
0: Chris, you came into this industry from an, an army background. Has it been a natural fit to make that switch uh, from your military career to working within the malicious risk space in the insurance market?
1: I mean, it was really. And there's a really strong veteran community in the kind of Lloyds and London market, which, you know, I'm very privileged to be a part of in one way or another. And I do think that some of the kind of analytical skills, I mean, as you know, I was in the army in my first career. I was a bomb disposal officer. So I suppose when speaking to clients... I'd like to think that I can provide perspective around the understand, manage and transfer piece. But also there's a kind of slightly more crunchy experience, which I suppose allows one to speak a little bit with portfolio. I don't think there are many directly transferable skills. I've not had to do any wire cutting in Lloyd's at any point. But I think the transition into the kind of London insurance market is one that many people take. It's a good transition. I was very lucky. I'd been out of the military for about three years. An individual and he knows who he is at Aon took a bit of a bet on me. And actually, I found going into a large North American corporate, having come out of the the military, quite an easy thing to do. One institution to another. Uh, JLT was then, or in its various guises, was where I spent some time there. And I have to say as well, I I was treated really very well in both of those institutions. Most veterans who come into the insurance market have slightly more imagination than I do and quite reasonably move away from kind of political violence, terror, k Because the, Because, you know, the market is so broad and so fascinating that it doesn't really make sense to stay in this tiny little niche, which is narrow. But for me, I do find it utterly fascinating. I think this ability to link the big, broad brush geopolitical with a big P issues of the day, you know, strategic competition, fourth industrial revolution, climate change, and then support our clients, whether that's insurers or reinsurers or even the direct insured, in helping them understand well, this year, these are the practical concerns you may have as a result of this. And here's how we can help you understand managed transfer. I just think it's great. You know, the insurance industry, I think, can sometimes suffer from the word insurance, which might not sound very exciting, but I think once you've operated in the London market, you know, I find it utterly fascinating, hugely rewarding, and actually a great place to apply a trade.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if you want to check out CHC's annual malicious risk report, you can find it on their website within the resources page and the thought leadership page within that. Tune in next time to listen to John Holzman, best-selling author and geopolitical risk consultant, to talk about his political risk predictions for 2024 and his new book, The Last Best Hope, Just Out, which sets out a structure for a future US Republican foreign policy, should they regain the White House, based on realist principles and using bipartisan historical examples from previous White House administrations. I've been your host, David Menyon, and my guest was Chris Holt, Chief Executive of CHC Global. Production was by Peter McGill and my cousin Lawrence Durkin provided the music.